Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All right, before we get started, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the Word tonight. We have so much to cover tonight, I don't think I'll get done till 10 o'clock. So just fasten your seat belts. We're in for a wild ride. Okay, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed so grateful that we live in this nation and that we have the heritage that we have and that Christianity and the teaching of the Bible and many of the tremendous doctrines in the Bible are just have been just uh, part of the warp and woof of this culture. But sadly, in the last couple of generations, we have seen this deteriorate tremendously. And now we live in truly a, an environment that is dominated by more and more anti-Christian ideas, more and more pagan ideas, and... We find ourselves as, as believers who seek to live uh, in a way that honors and glorifies you and think that way, surrounded by influences and ideas and images and people that are uh, just, just seem to assault us left and right. And we need to retool our thinking so that we can uh, better impact the culture around us rather than react to the culture around us. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight, you'll challenge us with the things that we see there, and that we can come to better understand what is going on in history and what you are doing in human history and how you will ultimately be glorified in human history. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 12 as we continue our study of Revelation, and Before we get started, we need to recognize that today is a significant day, and there are two reasons that today is recognized and two different commemorations that are taking place. Several of you are already aware of one of them, and that is that today, April 21st, which used to be a state holiday. When I was a kid, you got April 21st off. You didn't go to school. Sometimes it was a two-day, often it was a two-day holiday. We didn't have spring break back in those days. So now they have spring break and you don't learn anything about Texas history. But this is the uh, anniversary of the battle in 1836 when Texas defeated the armies of Santa Ana at the Battle of San Jacinto. There were approximately 1,500 Mexican troops and 910 American troops, I mean, uh, uh, Texas troops under under uh, Sam Houston, and it was one of the ten most significant battles in all of history. It took 18 minutes, and in 18 minutes' time, uh, in that short a length of time, more real estate was transferred from one nation to another than at any other time in history in that length, short of, amount of time, and that was the end of the Texas uh, re- revolution. At the time, Sam Houston was not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had had a rather interesting past, but when he was president of Texas, which came later, he married uh, again later in life, and she was a 
Baptist who led him to the Lord. So Sam Houston will uh, definitely be in heaven. Now that is important because that's part of our heritage of freedom and the ideas that influenced the Texans in 1836 are the same ideas that influenced those who founded the American Republic uh, some uh, 60 years earlier. But today is also another day of commemoration, and it is a uh, sadder day, and that is that this is Yom HaShoah, which is the Hebrew for the Day of Remembrance, the day that the Israeli Knesset set aside to remember the Holocaust that took place in, in World War II. The date was chosen because it comes between Passover and uh, the Israeli Memorial Day that they set aside to remember the soldiers that have fallen, uh, fallen in battle for the, uh, for the continued independence of Israel and the, uh, and Israel's Independence Day, which is May 14th. The day is chosen according to the Jewish calendar, not according to our calendar, so it floats like Passover floats. It is one week after the last day of the eight days of observance that begins with Passover and then the week-long observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so as we reflect upon the Holocaust and what happened during that time is one of the uh, darkest periods of Jewish history and one of the times when it may have appeared that Satan was going to have a tremendous victory in his assault against Israel as he is trying to uh, discredit God in history. That's what we're going to be studying tonight. Um, we see that that anti-Semitism is not at all dead, but it seems to be alive and uh, very healthy in our world today. And it's fitting that the topic tonight in Revelation chapter 12, and we'll be looking primarily at verses 3 through 5, focuses on that very doctrine, the doctrine related to Satan's antagonism and hostility to Israel as Israel because of the way God has chosen to use uh, Israel and the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in his plan for human history. Now, last time we saw that this gets is foreshadowed in the last verse of Revelation 11:19, where John sees the temple of God in heaven, and in it he focuses on the Ark of the Covenant. I pointed out last time that the reference to the Ark of the Covenant is a specific reminder of God's promises to restore Israel to the land because the covenant in the Ark of the Covenant was the Mosaic Covenant, and part of that covenant was the promise that at some time in the future, and it has not happened yet, God would restore the nation to the land in fulfillment of those promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the first two verses, we read a great sign. This is the first of seven signs that appears in this part of the book of Revelation. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. The imagery here comes out of the Old Testament and depicts Israel. The twelve stars represent the twelve tribes. The sun represents Jacob, the moon 
Rachel as the mother of the 12 sons, including Joseph, who became the uh, founders or progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. She's with child. This pictures the historic uh, role of Israel, and that is to bring forth this child that is the, excuse me, that is the promised seed of Abraham. The imagery, as I pointed out last time, comes out of Genesis 37.9 and Joseph's dream of the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to him. This is in the stream of uh, doctrine within Genesis, tracing God's promise to Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. And the seed goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and Joseph as the seed. And the idea of the seed goes back to Genesis chapter 3, 15 and 16. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. God is addressing Satan through the serpent. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So this is that initial promise, but it focuses on this word seed. But then in the next verse, God addressed the woman and said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth and in pain you will bring forth children. Now, if we go back and look at the verse in 12, uh, 2, we see the last clause, she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. So all of this terminology here is designed to cause us to think back to Genesis 3:15 and 16 and Genesis 37:9 and it pulls all of the, that uh, all that imagery together. And then in verse 3 we read that another sign appears uh, wait a minute. Here. There. Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. Now, the identity of this dragon is indicated clearly in verse 9. The great red dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So here, as I pointed out last time, we connect all of these different images and Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 is a key verse understanding that the serpent in the garden was Satan and the role of Satan in history as the one who is the antagonist of God and therefore the antagonist of of Israel. Now, the imagery of the seven heads and the ten horns is related to the final uh, kingdom that Satan will energize in human history that will be antagonistic to uh, Israel and try to destroy Israel during the tribulation. The tribulation will make the Holocaust pale in comparison. Now, in the last year, I did uh, quite a bit of study and research on the Holocaust, and it is not for, for the weak. We have a fairly good Holocaust museum here in Houston. I've been to the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., which is excellent, and some of the displays there just just are incredible. I mean, you stand up on about the third floor, and you look through a, uh, a, a plexiglass 
uh, wall and you just see these stacks of shoes. And you can't imagine all those shoes just came from those who were killed uh, at Auschwitz. And then you have, um, then I've been to the uh, uh, Holocaust Museum at Yad Vashem in, in Israel, which is remarkable for other reasons because in some ways I think that the National, the National Museum we have in D.C. Is, is better in some ways and the one in Yad Vashem is better in other ways. What makes it unique is all of the recorded video testimony of the survivors. And I, I, mean, I could just sit there and watch those and listen to those stories all day long. I mean, it's just incredible when you try to get your mind around what they, uh, what they went through. And if you haven't seen the film that came out recently, it was released in January called Defiance, which is the story of a, uh, uh, some brothers, the Belsky brothers, who uh, managed to escape escape arrest in what is now Belarus. Then it was uh, eastern Poland. And then, and then they fled into the forest, and then many Jews uh, gathered to them. They were Jewish. One of the brothers was a tremendous leader, and he really had a vision for using their, um, their partisan group not simply to wage guerrilla warfare against the Germans, but to rescue Jews, and they rescued a couple of thousand. And then if you didn't see it the other night, there was a uh, special on, um, on television that Hallmark Hall of Fame did on the courageous heart of Irina Sandler, and that was, that was also very well done. And she was a Polish lady who worked for the social services that went into, she was a social worker that went into the Warsaw Ghetto every um, every day, and she managed to smuggle children out, and she was responsible for saving over 2,500 uh, Jewish children. And, and the courage that, that it took to do this kind of thing is just, uh, just remarkable. But there are several good books out. The, probably one of the most extensive is a book on the Holocaust by Martin Gilbert. And if you're not familiar with Martin Gilbert, this man has got to have one of the most detail minds of anybody I have ever read as a historian. He is the uh, the historian or biographer, the authorized biographer for Winston Churchill, has written the standard biography for Churchill and several other historical uh, works. But he is also Jewish, and he has authored a number of these atlases, atlases of the wars, uh, the wars of Israel, and they're you know, 90 or 100 pages of maps. And these maps just have all this detail, troop numbers and identifications of units and these kinds of things. And then he has an atlas of the Holocaust that every page lists uh, all the different countries and all the different camps and all the and how many came in, how many were arrested every month. I mean, it's more information than you can possibly assemble. But he also has about a 900-page work on the Holocaust that I think is probably one of the definitive works on the Holocaust. And as uh, is, he's just uh, I, I've rarely read a historian that is as detailed and exacting as he is. So. The Holocaust was just, it's hard for us to even uh, comprehend what they went through. But that is going to pale in comparison to what happens during the tribulation. 
because Satan knows that he, he's read the Bible. He knows once the tribulation begins, he has seven years to wipe out all the Jews. And if you think about World War II and the death camps really didn't start ramping up until 1941. Before that, they had concentration camps, but the death camps that were created and designed specifically to just murder Jews didn't ramp up until 41. And they had so many problems to dispose of thousands of bodies a day. Just the logistics of that are just difficult for us to comprehend. What do you, how do you do that? I mean, with the crematoriums, you've got incredible problems because of the, uh, the heat that is generated in, in uh, cremating a human body. And when you multiply that times several thousand a day, it, it developed, they just had all kinds of problems doing that. And so uh, Satan's going to have to try to wipe out all the Jews before the end of the tribulation in order to achieve his objective. The only way he can win against God is to keep God from fulfilling his promises of the, that he made in the covenants to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is why he is going to go after Israel during the tribulation period. And this is what's depicted in verses 4 and 5, that this uh, the, the dragon is going to... He, he let historically, sometime in, in eternity past, he influenced a third of the angels, the stars of heaven, to uh, follow him. The text says he threw them to the earth. He is the subject of the verb. So this is his command to the fallen angels to go down to planet earth and influence human history. And then in the second part of the verse, we see his role in relationship to the woman, Israel, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. His mission up to the cross was to prevent God from providing salvation. And so you have satanic attacks against Israel all the way through the Old Testament, and that involved various attacks from uh, the influence of, uh, of uh, uh, Balaam back in Numbers when he told uh, the uh, Moabite king that the way to really have victory over the Jews was to have all the uh, his beautiful women go seduce the men, and then the men would follow after the women and eventually become seduced by their religion as well, which uh, was a key element in Satan's strategy and came very close to being victorious several times in Israel's history in the ancient world. The assaults on uh, the uh, descendants of David to try to destroy the Davidic heirs. And we've studied some of that through Jezebel in the north and through her daughter Athaliah in the south who killed, tried to kill all of her children. And one was hidden, one survived, who became the next king, and he was protected by God. And so the Davidic line continued to ultimately produce the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this was Satan's strategy in the Old Testament was to prevent the birth of the, the Messiah, the seed, and fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
uh, Revelation 12.5 said that she gave birth to a son, male child who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's his future destiny as the Messianic king. Comes out of Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, as we saw last time, and the, her child's caught up to God and to his throne, and that refers to the ascension of Christ to heaven where he now reigns. And so this introduces to us a very important doctrine, the doctrine of anti-Semitism. And this is Satan's strategy in human history. And if you understand, this is one of those important doctrines that if you understand this, it gives you a tremendous ability to understand the trends in politics today. You watch the news and you see the things that are happening, especially just the last three days, things that have happened that you would miss their significance. You might not understand why they're happening, but once you're clued into what the Bible says about God's plan for Israel and the uh, the evil of anti-Semitism, then these things begin to make sense. And one of the best little books that was ever done on this was the book that uh, Pastor Theme wrote on anti-Semitism. In fact, Tommy Ice told me that he picked this up somewhere, found it, back when he was in college, and that's what one of the things that really turned him on to prophecy and made him understand how important the Jews were uh, in history. And it's interesting, uh, Katie Tamping drew the cover, and I told her, I've told her several times I think this was the most brilliant cover she ever drew because of all the different swords there representing the different empires and different armies that have all attacked the Jews. The colors of the blue and white are the colors from the uh, modern Israeli flag. And I have seen this image all over the Internet. They Photoshop and take out the title or, or take out the name and they just leave it as anti-Semitism like that. And I've run, I run across this in places four or five different times a year. I'll run across this where people have plagiarized it, but we don't care. Just a, just a great image. Now, anti-Semitism is basically opposition to, prejudice against, or intolerance of the Jewish people because they are Jewish. If you just happen to dislike somebody or have a problem with somebody, and it happens to be that they're Jewish, that's not anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is when someone is hostile to, antagonistic to, or intolerant of someone simply because they are Jewish. That's what anti-Semitism is. The term Semite derives from Shem, who was one of Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, all all ethnic groups today, all races today, derive from Ham, Shem, or Japheth. A lot of times you'll hear people say, well, we all trace our heritage back to Adam. No, we actually all go back to Noah and then uh, back straight up that line in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 5. So Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Shem is was the... Uh, father of various uh, people groups, including the Akkadians and the Elamites, the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, the Arabs. Uh, Arabs are usually descendants of uh, partially from Abraham through Ishmael or down through Esau. But also there were other Arab groups that came out of cousins of Abraham. 
Syrians, Lydians, uh, Moabites, Ammonites, also through uh, an offshoot of Abraham's line, uh, Edomites, Midianites, some Armenians, Ethiopians, as well as Jews. So uh, the term Semite technically covers a wide range of Middle Eastern people, and most of the descendants of Shem ended up in that area around the Mediterranean. The descendants of Japheth are the Western European, Eastern European, Northern European uh, groups, Germans, Anglo-Saxons, the Russians, uh, Scandinavians, all of these different groups come out of Japheth. And then uh, all of the other groups, uh, Africans, Asians, all come from uh, Ham. So Semites technically refers to both Arabs and Jews, but the term has been narrowed and is used simply to refer to those who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what makes a Jew a Jew isn't that they are descendant from Abraham because there are many Arab groups that can trace their descent, as I said earlier, to either Esau, uh, who is the son of Isaac, or to Ishmael, who is the son of Abraham by, by Hagar. But that doesn't make you Jewish. What makes you Jewish is that you are a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore, by necessity, it takes you through those 12 sons, which are the, then that's the imagery of the 12 stars in the crown around the head of the woman in Revelation uh, chapter 12. Now, anti-Semitism historically has been focused on uh, animosity, prejudice, hatred of Jews as Jews. But since World War I, I mean World War II and the Holocaust, anti-Semitism has been somewhat politically incorrect in, in, the, um, in the West. And it's looked down upon in some sense. And so many people have cloaked or camouflaged their anti-Semitism in a new anti-Zionism. And so this is called the new anti-Semitism, and it's rooted in past anti-Semitism. And the new anti-Semitism targets not just the Jews as individuals, but Israel as a nation, because now, since 1948, for the first time in history, the Jews have returned to the land. And so often this is masked as a way of, well, I don't really mind if the Jews are back in the land, but we don't need to give them aid, and maybe we don't. Uh, I don't think that necessarily is anti-Semitic or not, but ultimately it boils down to whether or not they have the right to protect themselves, to arm themselves as a, as a nation. And if they are criticized for carrying out what any other nation would do in terms of national uh, territorial self-defense, and they're not given, they're not treated in the same way as any other nation, then that becomes a very uh, uh, subtle and horrible form of anti-Semitism because what you're basically saying is they need to, uh, they're not allowed to protect themselves or defend themselves, and it is buying into the horrible prop and propaganda and the lies of the uh, of, of Islam and the lies and the myths that there is such a thing as a Palestinian people and the Palestinians have a right to the nation because the Palestinians really don't. They really There's no ethnic group known as Palestinians. 
these were just Arabs who happened to be living maybe for two or three generations in the land that was historically Israel's. And this land was not theirs because prior to World War I, all of the land in the Middle East was part of the Ottoman Empire. And the nations that are there now, such as Jordan and Lebanon, Syria, uh, Israel, the West Bank, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, all of these nations came into existence as a result of the Western powers carving up that territory after World War I, because the Ottoman Empire prior to that, since the well, that area had just been part of various uh, uh, Islamic um, Islamic empires going back to the rise of of, uh, of Islam in the eighth century. But they had none of those nations had ever existed, and because the Ottoman Empire was allied with Germany during World War One, when the Ottoman Empire fell, then the West came in and just carved up those states, and they just arbitrarily created boundaries where there had never been boundaries before, and they broke various promises because initially at the end of World War. Uh, World War One. there had been a very famous declaration by the uh, British authored by Arthur Balfour, who was raised in a solid Christian home, and because of that he had a tremendous love and respect for the Jews. And he, he and several others, such as David Lloyd George, who had been prime minister, that they uh, believed that the Jews had a right to a national homeland. And so in the Balfour Declaration, which was validated by, by uh, Parliament, they issued this declaration that they would designate this land that included, and at the time it included both what is now modern Israel plus the, trans, the Transjordan, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. And so that was all to be part of Israel's territory. And then they backed off of that promise through the through the 20s and the 30s until when the U.N. finally voted for a petition in November of 1947. They just had a small little territory, small strip along the Mediterranean and a few little areas inland, and that was all they were going to give to the Jews and all the rest of it they were going to give to the Palestinians. And people today talk about the Palestinians have a right to their own state, and they do. And that state was called the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, and it's on the other side of the Jordan River, east of the Jordan River. That was how things were set up. But the trouble is that the Arabs um, in the uh, Israeli war for independence, the Arabs, uh, would, the Arab nations surrounding them would not let these refugees come into their areas. And when they did, and Jordan let several come in, they kept them in these horrible refugee camps in order to use them as propaganda tools against Israel and against the West. And if you want to get some real insight into the character of the Arab in that area, then you ought to read a book called The Hodge by Leon Uris. It's a historical novel, but it's very well written, and it talks about, uh, from, from the vantage point of the Arabs, and early on in that novel, uh, he, ha- the, he has the father, who is uh, Hodge Ibrahim, talking to his son, 
and describing the nature of uh, the the uh, Arab village that brother hates brother, but brother will ally with brother against the father, and they one family of brothers cousins will hate another family of cousins, but they will ally against somebody else. But nobody trusts each other, and this is just just part of their uh, their culture. And they just turn against it. And you can witness this in the way that the Arab nations have dealt with each other uh, throughout the period from 1945 up through the end of uh, the 20th century as they would break various agreements with one another and, and going against Israel. So anti-Semitism is on the rise. And there is a tremendous need to make sure that we understand that and that we stand against it. One, there are several books that have come out in recent years dealing with this. There's uh, the one by Phyllis Chesler, The New Anti-Semitism, which demonstrates that um, the old-fashioned anti-Semitism has now become this um, uh, anti-Zionism. And <clears throat> it's a, it recognizes that there's a dangerous worldwide coalition of Islamic terrorists and well-intentioned but uh, misinformed students. You, you find this on college campuses, university campuses, and it's being ignited even more and more by elements of the Muslim Brotherhood that have established chapters on hundreds of university campuses in the United States. And so they constantly are working to uh, infect uh, the nations in the West with this anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, anti-Semitism. A couple of other books that have come out, Gabriel Schoenfeld's Return of Anti-Semitism and Abraham Foxman's Never Again, The Threat of the New Anti-Semitism. And this is just bred into the Arab culture. This is an Arab uh, editorial cartoon where they have the Jews at the Wailing Wall worshiping their god of hate. They constantly feed this into their culture. I, have, I haven't been over there, but friends of mine who have gone over, worked with oil companies in Saudi Arabia and in other uh, Arab countries, when they watch television, there's just... The, you know, the commercials, they're, they're, they're government-owned, and the commercials are just one after the other, spewing this hate, this hate and lies about the Jews. And they, they spread the lie about, uh, you know, the drinking the blood from the uh, communion and various other uh, cartoons where they are uh, picturing just all these terrible things about, about the Jews and, and especially their relationship with, uh, with the West. And so you see this, this thing that uh, finds a tremendous, um, tremendous uh, soil that accepts it in Europe. Europe has had a, a tradition of anti-Semitism since uh, the early Middle Ages, and that is because of their eschatology. That's why prophecy matters. That's why understanding the Bible correctly matters when the early church shifted to an, an amillennial position. 
where the church was understood to replace Israel, then Israel was then viewed as having been kicked out by God and that they were under a curse and they were the Christ killers and they were the ones who killed Jesus and so it's okay to uh, despise them and to attack them and to murder them. And so this, I'm not saying that amillennialism is inherently anti-Semitic, but it provides a theological framework within which anti-Semitism can breed and take root. And that is the Catholic, the Roman Catholic heritage in uh, Western, uh, Western Europe. And this is what impacted um, Adolf Hitler. He wrote that gradually he began to hate the Jews. For me, this was the time of the greatest spiritual upheaval I've ever gone through. I've ceased to be a weak-kneed cosmopolitan and have become an anti-Semite. And it's also important to understand the connection between Nazism and the modern terrorist uh, activities of the radical Muslims in the Middle East. And that connection comes through a man who was the, um, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajimini uh, al-Husseini, who was the, also the uncle of Yasser Arafat. And Hajimini al-Husseini became, he, this guy was, was just a gangster and a thug and he organized the um, uh, Arabs, and he generated the first terrorism after the, after the end of World War I in order to react against the British who were trying to promote the Balfour Declaration. And you can read about him, and he's going to, after eight, uh, 1933, he's going to Berlin to sit down with Hitler, and he is... Uh, filling them with ideas, anti-Semitic ideas coming out of Islam, and there is this relationship that develops, and he raised uh, a couple of divisions of SS troops that were uh, uh, Muslims in the Balkans during World War II. Of course, that didn't fit the Aryan ideal, and it really angered a number of the other uh, other Nazi leaders because they weren't blonde, blue-eyed, but they were definitely anti-Semitic. And then after the end of World War II, a large number of Nazi war criminals were able to escape into Syria and Saudi Arabia and Egypt because they were welcomed by um, by the, by the Arabs. And there's a scene, if you watch the film, another ex- excellent film that really does a good job portraying the uh, War of Independence for Israel in, in 1948, is the film The, uh, the Exodus, by, uh, also by, based on the book by, by Leon Uris. And it, I don't think this film could be made today. Uh, Paul Newman's in it. And I forget who else is in it, but it's a it's very accurate historically. And there's one scene in there where Paul Newman has been shot, and he's going to be cared for by this uh, Arab uh, man who's the mufti of his village. And so he takes him into his house, and he's hiding him, and he's taking care of him. And then the, the grand mufti returns to. Uh, he's been in hiding up in uh, Syria, and he's coming back into the land, and he comes in with his four blonde, blue-eyed former SS henchmen who end up killing this Arab friend 
of, of the Paul Newman character. And, you know, this takes about five minutes in the middle of the film, but I don't think that would make it today. That's not politically correct, but it is historically accurate that the Grand Mufti surrounded himself with this bodyguard made up of former uh, SS stormtroopers and uh, de- who had par- been part of the Totenkopf and the uh, Death's Head squads uh, for the... Uh, for the Germans in World War II. Now, I'm going to switch here, see if I can pull this off. And we're going to get a little film to give you an idea of the kind of thing that is going on today. This is a sermon by a Hamas uh, cleric on April the 3rd of this year. And I don't know how well the It's transcribed at the base, and I don't know how well that's going to come across, so I'll try to read it so that those who are watching by on live stream can hear it and understand it. This is put out by memory. Who is leading the world today against Islam and its people? Who's leading the fierce and vehement campaign in the world today against Islam and its people? The answer is as clear as day. It's the nation of the Jews. It's the Jews who are leading. The vehement campaign against the Muslims today. We Muslims know best the nature of the Jews because the Quran has informed us about this. And because the pure Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad has devoted much space to informing the Muslims for the truth about the Jews and their hostility to Islam and its prophet. Their famous book, the existence of which is denied by the reasonable people among them, is the so-called Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which came out of a, it's, it's a fraud, it was a, developed by the Russians in the late 19th century, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. In this book, the Jews include their plan to deceive the whole world. This is the number one and number two bestseller in Arab countries. It says that uh, by land, by air, by sea, by ideology, by economy, and by the media, they seek controls as having today, my brothers in the nation, of the Prophet Muhammad. The Jews today are weaving their spider webs. It's all a Jewish conspiracy in order to encircle our nation. Notice how many women are sitting out there. In order to spread corruption throughout the world. Allah willing, the moment will come. their prophecy will be destroyed, their sons annihilated. That is their goal. Their goal is not a Palestinian state. It's to destroy the Jews until not a single Jew or Zionist remains on the earth. There used to be a dog that frightened the neighborhood, and this dog begot a pup, which was more wicked than its father. The Jews are always the same, brothers. Both dogs and pups bark and bite, both are impure. That is the truth about the Jews. 
This is from uh, Memory. That's the Middle East Media Research Institute, and their website is memory.org, which is a tremendous site to go to because they put up things like this, videos, as well as uh, 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 translations of uh, speeches, newspaper articles, things of that nature. So you can go there and you can read what is uh, being published and what's being printed and what's being put out by the media in uh, Islamic countries because they, they, they don't talk in English, and so we don't understand what they're saying. They'll say one thing in English and turn around and say just the opposite in, uh, in Arab, and it is, it's just pure, uh, pure vitriol. Now, another thing that happened on uh, the last couple of days is that there was a U.N. conference in Geneva called the Durban II Conference. And this Durban II Conference follows what was a, the Durban I, which was in 2001, which was the U.N. World Conference Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance. Sounds like a wonderful thing. There are all the nations in the world are going to get together and have a unified uh, condemnation against racism, racial discrimination, etc. And this has been on the news because the United States decided to boycott it. And then yesterday, Ahmadinejad spoke and created a uh, little conflict, and somebody came in dressed in a clown outfit and ran around down the front as a protester. And uh, uh, what I'm reading from here from my notes is a very good um, uh, outline of what happened the last couple of days put out by the David Project, which is a, a, a Jewish project for supporting various uh, various uh, things in Israel and puts out a lot of uh, really good information. And what happened, uh, the, just to track this, because it's important to understand what's going on today so that we can take all this doctrine we learn about anti-Semitism and kind of apply it to what's happening today so that we can learn how to think critically about the events of our time through the grid of Scripture. And so as this uh, UN conference came together, and always remember that the UN as an internationalist, globalist organization is just the modern version of the Tower of Babel, which was an affront to God. Internationalism violates the fifth divine institution, which has to do with individual nations that God has set up and has created their borders and boundaries for national identity. So the, the initial draft document which they produced for the conference was dramatically anti-Israel and anti-Western as well as anti-free speech. Then this document got revised, all this disappeared, and then reappeared uh, just a, about a week ago. And the drafting process was uh, primarily in secret, run by the organizers, including the conference chair who was from, uh, from Libya. At the last minute, the United States reluctantly boycotted the conference, and thankfully our uh, new president took a stand and pointed out that he would have been glad to be involved in a useful conference that addressed the real issues of racism and discrimination around around the world, but since their document raised a whole set of objectionable provisions, then the United States was not going to participate. Neither did Canada or Israel. They boycotted, and following the U.S. announcement, Australia, Italy, Sweden, Germany, uh, all boycotted. Notice the many of the nations, Australia, I mean Austria, 
Oh, excuse me, I said Australia. Uh, many of the nations like Poland and the Czech Republic and the Netherlands, which experienced the anti-Semitism in World War II, boycotted the conference and did not go. The U.K., which does have a high tolerance for anti-Semitism, sent a low-level delegation. France also announced that they would send a low-level delegation, but both of those nations said the first sign of anti-Israel or anti-Western bias, they would leave. Isn't that interesting? What sensitivity? You would think that the President of the United States who went to a conference in Latin America would have the same thing. He would, that if, if anybody got up in, on the pulpit in front of him and started uh, running down the United States of America, that he would get up and leave. That's just the way you're supposed to do things. But he sat there for 50 minutes and let Daniel Noriega run down the U.S., and I just don't understand that. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. That, that just violates every bit of protocol I was ever taught. So at least the French and the British recognize that as soon as there's the first sign of this kind of talk, you get up and leave, which is, which is what they did. But the U.S. boycott and their reaction was condemned. The U.N. High Commissioner on Human Rights, Navi Pillay, stated, I'm shocked and deeply disappointed by the United States' decision not to attend a conference that aims to combat racism, xenophobia, racial discrimination, and other forms of intolerance. So you have to watch the way they work. Don't you really want that goal? Well, if you want that goal, then you would be there. And the reason you're not there, if you're not there, you can't get anything to happen. So... um, Democratic Representative Barbara Lee from California, who is the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, also stated her and her differences with the U.S. decision. She said this decision is inconsistent with the administration's policy of engaging with those we disagree with and uh, those we agree with and those we disagree with. By boycotting Durban, the U.S. is making it more difficult for it to play a leadership role on U.N. Human Rights Council as it states it plans to do. She thinks this is a missed opportunity, plain and simple. But this is the same brilliant congressman Congresswoman who went down to visit Castro last week and said he would just like a good old grandfatherly neighbor and how wonderful it was to visit him. Of course, she didn't say anything about the thousands of people he has uh, murdered and thrown in prison and political repression and everything. So you just wonder what these, what kind of values some of these, uh, some of these people have. So, uh, but fortunately, there was quite a reaction to Ahmadinejad's speech when he called Israel a racist government and asserting that uh, the Israelis were racist perpetrators of genocide and that the whole Holocaust was just a fraud. There was no such thing uh, as a Holocaust. Twenty-three European uh, Union diplomats walked out, uh, as well as various other forms of, uh, of reaction. So this is just some items that are in the news today, the last couple of days. And as we look at this, what I'm trying to show you is that going through these doctrines and looking at what's going to happen in the future is important because it helps us to put on those those doctrinal glasses that we need in order to properly interpret and understand current events and where they're going. And as we get into the next chapter, this chapter in Revelation 12 and the next chapter in Revelation 13, 
that focus on the Antichrist and what he does. This is going to be one of the most charismatic figures, and I don't mean that in a theological sense. One of the most, uh, uh, he's going to be personally attractive to people. This just like Hitler, just, just wonderful. Uh, uh, people I know who were German said, you just became mesmerized by his rhetoric, by his oratory. He just, he just almost hypnotized people the way he spoke. And when we have any kind of political leader that develops that kind of response in people, this is like the Antichrist. It is a lowercase Antichrist. It's not saying they are the Antichrist. Hitler wasn't. Others haven't been, but they're like that. They, they reflect that kind of personality and that kind of of response. And so as we get into this in the next few weeks and we see what the Bible describes as the characteristics of the, of the future Antichrist, it helps us to see similar patterns. And you know what's important about that? Is Satan doesn't have any more of an idea of when Jesus Christ is going to return at the rapture than you do. That means that he has to be ready with his man to move into the spot as Antichrist Every single day. That's why you can go back in history and say, well, maybe it was this person, and it could have looked like it was going to be that person. It looked like it was going to be this other person. It might have been, could have been, if the rapture had occurred then. But we don't know. So we just have to uh, be aware of that. We have to remember that God's uh, plan for Israel has not changed but that Israel is still under under assault. And we have to be careful of that because we come under such a politically correct pressure in our country because we have this view of tolerance that means we can't really say anything negative or bad about somebody else's religion. And when we're talking about Islam, we have to realize that the very heartbeat of Islam is anti-Semitism and therefore is not acceptable uh, acceptable to God. Just one, one other quote I have here. This comes out of uh, Pastor Theme's book on anti-Semitism. In that book, uh, it's written, The venom that renders masses of people susceptible to anti-Jewish agitation is more than fear, distrust, prejudice, insecurity, or envy. This vicious hatred reflects the angelic conflict and Satan's subsequent machinations to defeat the plan of God. No matter how non-spiritual he may be, the Jew is the center of a very real spiritual warfare. And so when we're talking about Israel or looking at Israel in history, we have to realize that. Now, we have to be careful here because there are some people who go to the an equally erroneous extreme, and they think that any decision that Israel makes, we need to support because it's Israel. Well, that's not true. I mean, if you are a believer in my church and you make certain decisions, I'm not going to support you in those decisions. Why should I do that? Just because they're Israel doesn't mean they're right. Zionism is the belief that the Jews have a right to their national homeland. Christian Zionism was the belief that, Christ, that Christians had to help Jews achieve nas, a national homeland and to secure that for their people. 
At its core, Zionism is the belief that they have a right to have a nation, and like any other nation, they have the right to defend themselves, and they have the right to protect their borders and their national integrity and safety, just like any other group of people. And that means that that when they have terrorists that are coming into their midst and they blowing themselves up in these homicide bombings, and when they have uh, Hamas and Hezbollah sitting on their borders and lobbing missiles in on their on their cities, that they have a right to do what the United States would do or any other nation would do. Just imagine what the French would do if the British started lobbing uh, missiles across the English Channel into France. There wouldn't be much left of Britain by the end of the year. Or if the Mexicans started lobbying missiles across the Rio Grande or something of that nature, then the United States wouldn't put up with that for 48 hours. We would go down there with everything we had. But if Israel tries to do anything against Hamas or Hezbollah, they're wrong. There's a double standard. And that, that's what I mean now, if, if uh, Israel makes other military decisions or if they make certain economic decisions, because it is a, it's a, it, it, they, their system of economics there is extre- extremely socialist. It's one of the most socialist systems in the world, and that comes out of the, uh, uh, comes out of their background and setting up the, uh, uh, various uh, kibbutzim in, in Israel. But they have a, so, so the decisions they make are not necessarily right. And that, so supporting Israel doesn't mean supporting everything they do. It means that supporting them in their mission as a nation to protect their borders and to secure their own safety against their, uh, national, against their national enemies. And that goes to the very core of Islam. In a 1998 fatwa, that was issued, it states, the ruling to kill the Americans and their allies, civilian and military, that's not only the West, that's also Israel, is an individual duty for every Muslim who can do it in any country in which it is possible to do it in order to liberate the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that's there on the Temple Mount, and the Holy Mosque, which is the Kaaba in Mecca, that's now in Saudi Arabia, from their grip. See, that was a reaction to the fact that there had been so many Americans in Saudi Arabia during the first Gulf War. But notice, to liberate the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Temple Mount is really at the core of a lot of this. The Temple Mount in Israel and control of the Temple Mount and control of that land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he didn't give it to Ishmael and Esau. In their textbooks, they have written the Palestinian conflict with Israel and America are two branches in the general total global war of Islam against the West and all other religions. Inside the Quran, there's continuous authorization to holy war against anyone who is not a Muslim. In the Hadith in al-Bukhari, we read, What is the best deed? To believe in Allah and his apostle. What is the next? To participate in jihad in Allah's cause. In surah, that's one of the chapters in the Quran. They're all identified as surahs. 
We read, fight in the way of Allah against those who fight against you, but begin not the hostilities. This is further expanded in Surah 3.28. Let not the believers, that's Islam, Muslim, take for friends or helpers unbelievers rather than believers. See, they're prohibited from having a real friendship with anyone anyone who's not a Muslim. If any do that, in nothing will there be help from Allah except by way of precaution that you may guard yourselves from them. In other words, it's just a deceptive way to gain advantage for yourself. But Allah cautions you to remember himself for the final goal is to Allah. So we have to remember this, and I'll send out tomorrow a link to a website. We don't have time to watch it now. It's about a 10-minute video. But it goes into how the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the radical, uh, a radical organization that began um, uh, back earlier in the 20th century and has influenced and given birth actually to Al-Qaeda and to most of the other uh, radical organizations and how the Muslim Brotherhood has established, uh, like fraternities, they've established uh, units on hundreds of U.S. university and college uh, campuses. And that will sort of open your eyes as to uh, some of the things that are going on. But all of what we see today, all of this rise of anti-Semitism is a precursor to what is going to take place during the tribulation. Because Satan's goal now, because he was defeated at the cross, is if he's going to gain any leverage against God, he must defeat God's plan to give the, to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's the thrust of what is going on here in, uh, describing Revelation 12, 1, uh, 1 to 6. And it culminates and a destruction of Israel that occurs in the tribulation, I think they're going to be all but wiped out. Scripture says only a third of the Jews survive at the end of the tribulation uh, period, and these are the Jews that flee into the wilderness where they are protected. That's verse 6, and we will get into that next time as well as come back and uh, deal a little more with the imagery of the seven heads and the ten horns. Uh, let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can understand from your word how to interpret history, interpret the current events around us, and see these trends that go through history, and that we can understand what is really going on in the Arab-Israeli conflict, what was really going on in generating the anti-Semitism that occurred in, in Germany in World War II, and just the various other trends that are taking place and the world around us today. Your word gives us the wisdom and the insight to understand our times. And, Father, we recognize that all that we are and all that we have is because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and that we can have salvation simply by trusting in him. And if we trust in him, we know that our destiny is in heaven and that as members of your royal family, you will uh, watch over us, protect us, and there is a special plan for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.